Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amka na Unai. It is 800 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequencies 7230 kHz in the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. We also on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumanele Zondi and I am with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Tamek Goza. Your top stories. UN envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in South Sudan. Kenyan MPs disrupt President Kenyatta's State of the Nation address. South African opposition parties urge ruling ANC to recall President Jacob Zuma. In economics, Zimbabwe expects to raise 22 million US dollars in land taxes. In sports, FIFA bans Ivorian international football star for a year. Let's get your news from and Musa first. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has until mid-July to pay back some of the money for non-security upgrades at his private residence in Nkandla in KwaZulu-Natal province in terms of the constitutional court judgment. The unanimous judgment ruled that Zuma had failed to uphold and defend the constitution by not abiding by the public protector's report that he should pay back a portion of the money. Chief Justice Mukweng Mukweng made it clear that the public protector's remedial action is binding and set out a time frame of 105 days. The National Treasury must report back to this court on the outcome of its determination within 60 days of the date of this order. The president must personally pay the amount determined by the National Treasury within 45 days of this court's signification of its approval of the report. Meanwhile, former ANC Treasurer General Matthew Sposa has called on President Jacob Zuma to step down. In a speech delivered to business leaders, Sposa pleaded with the ANC to take decisive action following the Constitutional Court ruling. However, analysts predict the ANC will have little appetite to recall Zuma. The coalition of national union of opposition in Djibouti is divided as three major parties have decided to boycott the upcoming elections. Djibouti's president Ishmael Omar Kilal has been in power for more for 17 years and is almost guaranteed re-election in the April polls. However, a divide of the coalition of national union of opposition has agreed to participate in the ballot. Though they have not yet agreed on a single candidate, two candidates have found the application to contest. Refugees at the internally displaced persons camp at Bakasi in Maiduguri, northern Nigeria, could soon be heading back home. This follows the recovery by the Nigerian army of most of the territories in the northern part lost to the Islamist militant group Boko Haram during the group's five-year insurgency. The camp played host to about 13,000 displaced people who are all trying to survive amid food shortages. 
And finally, the international community has been urged to increase assistance in the form of food, water and medicine to people in war-torn Libya. The appeal was made by the UN Humanitarian Coordinator for the North African country, Ali Al-Zatari. Life-saving aid is being distributed throughout Libya by the UN and its partners. Essential medicines and medical supplies have been donated to Libyan hospitals and health clinics, benefiting up to one million people. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric has more. Up to 180,000 people, primarily those internally displaced, are also receiving food assistance. Over 30,000 people have received basic assistance supplies since November of last year. However, the humanitarian coordinator for Libya, Ali al-Zatari, calls on the international community to provide more financial resources to help more people in need in the country. So far, only 18 million of the 166 million dollars required for humanitarian response for this year in Libya has been received and as a result food and medicine stocks are currently running low. That's the news headlines at 8:30 Central African time. Africa rise and shine. Africa zola. Africa amuka na unai. Thank you very much, Anmusa. The time is 8.05 Central African time right here on Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Send us tweets. We are on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter or Rise Shine Africa. It's Rise Shine Africa or Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. Now, there is urgent need to sustain momentum towards achieving peace in South Sudan, the Security Council heard on Thursday. Although the country will celebrate five years of independence in July, it has been mired in political turmoil and violence for roughly half that time. Conflicts between government forces and armed groups has pushed more than 2 million people out of their homes with some 200,000 civilians seeking shelter in a UN-run protection sites. It has also generated a humanitarian crisis with half the population, some 6 million people, requiring humanitarian assistance, Dian Pen reports. The crisis in South Sudan stems from a December 2013 impasse between President Salva Kiir and his former deputy, Riek Mashar. Despite an August 2015 peace deal, the parties have yet to form a transitional unity government and ceasefire violations continue. Festus G. Mogai, the former president of Botswana, is chairperson of the international expert group charged with monitoring implementation of the agreement. There is little time to be lost if the next two and a half years, the transition period provided for in the agreement, are to be meaningful and see genuine implementation of the agreement's provisions. The UN reports that all sides to the conflict have committed gross human rights violations and abuses, including killings, sexual violence, pillaging, and the recruitment of child soldiers. The peace agreement also provides for the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, among other measures. But the lack of a transitional government means that these mechanisms are on hold. Kate Gilmore is the UN Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights. The lasting and only viable solution to the terror and pain perpetrated against the people of South Sudan is to dismantle the apparatus of violence, hold to account those who have imposed such egregious suffering and put an end to the cycle of impunity. Hostilities must cease promptly and conclusively. 
and the international community must do what is needed to support the transitional government of national unity once formed so that these transitional justice mechanisms can be instigated to function fully and effectively throughout their necessary lifespan. Long-term stability in South Sudan is also being threatened by ongoing intercommunal violence, such as clashes over cattle raids, the head of the UN mission in the country, UNMIS, told council members. Ellen Margaret Loy said South Sudan's deteriorating economy is also a factor, as are its rising humanitarian needs. Sustained progress will require that both parties form the transitional government without further delay and that they demonstrate the courage to compromise for the sake of peace. Most importantly, it will require that South Sudan's leaders begin to put the people first. Ms. Loy pointed out that while the formation of the transitional government is a necessary step towards stability, it is but a first step in the hard work of rebuilding the country. Diane Penn, United Nations. Opposition parties in uh, opposition parties in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance and the Economic Freedom Fighters enjoyed a resounding victory in the country's constitutional court. The highest court of the country not only affirmed the powers of the public protector, but it also declared that the president and the national assemblies acted in breach of their constitutional obligations. This relates to their handling of the public protector's 2014 report into upgrades to the president's Ngandla home. The courts described the judgment as of monumental importance to the nation and well-being of the country's constitutional democracy. Candace Nolan reports. The 11 judges of the Constitutional Court spoke with one voice in one of the most politically significant judgments in the history of our democracy. A full bench sat for the marathon judgment, which lasted an hour. The unanimous decision, penned by Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng, settles once and for all the debate on the powers of the public protector. She is the embodiment of a biblical David who fights the most powerful and very well-resourced Goliath that impropriety and corruption by government officials are. The office of the public protector is one of the two crusaders and champions of anti-corruption and clean governance. Hers are indeed very wide powers that leave no lever of government power above scrutiny. Chief Justice Mohueng says President Jacob Zuma was perfectly within his rights to disagree with the public protector's findings, but criticized the president over his handling of her report, saying he should have applied for a court review. The president should have decided whether to comply with the public protector's remedial action or not. If not, then much more than his mere contentment with the correctness of the report generated at his instance was called for. Only after a court of law would have set aside the findings and the remedial action taken by the public protector would it have been open to the president to disregard the public protector's report. His difficulty here is that he did not challenge the report through a judicial process. Thus emboldened by the minister's conclusion and a subsequent resolution by the National Assembly to the same effect, the president neither paid for the non-security installations nor reprimanded the ministers involved in the Nkanda project. And this is where and how the public protector's remedial action was second-guessed. Absent a court challenge... 
The Constitutional Court was also damning on Parliament's final decision to accept the Minister of Police's report that absolved the President of any wrongdoing. The Court found that they failed in their obligation to hold the President accountable. The President's failure to comply with the remedial action is inconsistent with his obligations to uphold, defend and respect the Constitution. Similarly, the failure by the National Assembly to hold the President accountable by ensuring that he complies with the remedial action taken against him is inconsistent with its obligations to scrutinize and oversee executive action and to maintain oversight of the exercise of executive powers by the President. The court will now be supervising the implementation of the public protector's remedial action. President Zuma will have to pay back the money for non-security upgrades within the next 105 days. Treasury will have to determine President Zuma's financial liability in reference to the swimming pool, cattle crawl, chicken run, visitor centre and amphitheatre. And although the president had argued that it was too late to reprimand the ministers who were responsible for the project as they are no longer in those positions, the constitutional court insisted. The president must reprimand the ministers involved pursuant to the public protector's remedial action. On the eve of the judgment, constitutional law experts were conservative in their predictions. They expected the real focus to be on the court's decision on the powers of the public protector. Professor Marinus Vickers had said that the court would be loath to go as far as the DA and EFF proposed. I thought at the most they would say that the findings are binding, so Parliament must reconsider it in the sense of being remedial action that's got to be complied with and then if they don't want to comply they must supply sufficient reasons but the court went further and i'm so glad that i'm so wrong in my prognosis and they drew the necessary conclusion once you say as they did that the findings of the public protection are binding then you've got to look at the way Parliament and the President treated these binding decisions. And they actually went to the very logical way and declaring these actions not in conformity with the, the law, the Constitution, and in breach of the President's oath and undertaking to comply with the Constitution and the law of the land. During the hearing, President Zuma's lawyers argued that the court need not declare the president's conduct invalid as this could serve as grounds for impeachment in what they described as a delicate time in a dangerous year. I'm Candace Nolan in Johannesburg. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, Tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hello listener, join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. 
Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. 8.16 Central African Time right here on... Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember that you can send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za on email. And you can give us feedback on any of the stories that you hear right here on Channel Africa. Now, for more reaction on yesterday's Constitutional Court judgment, uh, Kevin McAllisey spoke to International Relations and Cooperation Minister in South Africa, Maite Ngwana Mashabane. They were at the Nuclear Security Summit in the U.S. capital, Washington. In South Africa, um, even the house I stay in, uh, provided by the state, is not maintained by me. It's maintained by public works, our public works. If they think there are security features that have to be put in, they do so. So the same applied to the place where President Zuma stays. In my recollection, since the, uh, um, the public protector said he should pay some of the money, he has been in Parliament on so many occasions saying, can we have a proper investigation as to what does it mean some of the money and how much that is? He came out uh, a few weeks ago and said, I will pay them that some of the money that I do not know how much it is, if that will be good for South Africa. So, I'm not at home. Uh, I know that uh, his office uh, and the government will have an opportunity to look at uh, this uh, outcome. But he's never hidden his hand, he's his head uh, in the sand on this matter. This wasn't op- simply an opposition criticism. This was from a constitutional chief judge. Um, who said that the President Zuma failed to uphold, defend and respect the Constitution. True. That is uh, quite a scathing judgment upon mm-hmm. uh, the head of your, your party. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, uh, how, how do you respond to critics who have immediately uh, called, said that his position is no longer tenable and that he mm-hmm. has to go? Well, I wish I had the power to just stand up here and speak for 80-something members of my party. But uh, I'm one here. There's 79-odd of them back home, even more than that, and including the president himself. We will sit, reflect on the matter, because it's not a new matter. It's old. Like I said, on many occasions it was debated in parliament. He had repeatedly said, what does some of the money mean? Because he was building his own homestead. And uh, public works and people with the security features uh, uh, knowledge came. And uh, 
Half the time when you ask, what are you doing? They say you're interfering with your, with your job. And it's, you, you get equally in trouble for asking. So if you don't ask, also they say you should have taken responsibility. So I'm sure the party will uh, make all those reflections. That is the Minister of International Cooperation in South Africa, Maite Nguana Mashaban, is speaking to Kevin McAllisey. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta was on Thursday forced to delay his annual State of the Nation address following whistling by protesting opposition members of parliament. The MPs had earlier announced that they would boycott or disrupt proceedings to express their displeasure with the Kenyatta administration for what they say is its failure to stem rampant corruption. Kenyatta told the House that he expects the economy to grow by 6% this year, up from 5.8% in 2015. Sarah Kimani reports. Kenyatta had just risen to speak when loud whistling started from the opposition benches. He was forced to take his seat as the Speaker of the National Assembly, Justin Muturi, sought to restore order. Honorable members, the Honorable Andai, having refused to obey the instruction to withdraw from the chamber, I want to draw your attention to the provision of standing order number 111. Several opposition members of parliament found to be against the standing orders were ejected from the house. Therefore, what we are saying is that the president should not address the nation. He should first of all sort out the messes in this country before he comes to address the nation. And that is what we are protesting. When Kenyatta started his address, he was optimistic that the country's economy is resilient and expanding. I am glad that the macroeconomic foundation of Kenya are strong and sustainable. I have to request our real GDP growth the use of force was 5.8% in 2015 and we expect to hit the 6% mark over the next 12 months. Inflation has remained under control and our foreign exchange reserves have improved. Since he took over power in 2013, President Kenyatta's government has been hit by allegations of corruption and mismanagement. Kenyatta, however, says he has taken action to end graft. Today, there are more than 360 corruption cases before the courts, most of them involving senior public officials. Indeed, I took the unprecedented step of dismissing a third of my cabinet a very painful but necessary decision. The State of the Nation's address is seen as a report card of sorts for any administration. This time, even more crucial for Kenyatta as the East African nation heads to the polls in August next year. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. 8.23 Central African time in Syria. Desperately needed aid is still not getting through to some besieged areas. The United Nations has said... 
Jan Egeland, who is the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for the country, said there was frustration that early momentum that initially helped aid convoys reach people in the war-torn country had not been maintained. Here's Daniel Johnson. He is in Geneva. Getting aid convoys into Syrian communities that are barely surviving is coming under unexpected pressure, UN aid coordinator Jan Egeland has warned. Speaking in Geneva, where he heads the UN's humanitarian task force for the country, Egeland said that three besieged locations outside Damascus were still out of bounds, from a total of 18 places. We still have not gotten access, green light, to go at all to Duma, Daraya and East Harasta, three areas. Duma big place, more than 90,000 people in need, Daraya, a place where conditions are horrendous for the relatively few civilians who are still there. So far this year, the UN and its partners have reached more than 400,000 people in besieged, hard-to-reach and other priority locations with dire humanitarian needs. This is a vast improvement compared with 2015, when very little aid got through at all. But Jan Egeland said he's now afraid that momentum is slipping on aid access, and there's also frustration among some members of the UN-led International Humanitarian Task Force. Among the problems inside Syria are unexpected security issues that are now hampering access to places where aid convoys have been allowed to go in the past, Egeland said. These include Kafabatna, Madaya and Madamiya. And although access was agreed a week ago to three new areas, Arbin, Zamalka and Zabdin, there's a discrepancy between the UN and the Syrian government's assessment of how many people need help. Other long-standing concerns include the veto on surgical equipment, which is still being taken off convoys, and the worry that medical personnel are still not allowed to treat cut-off communities. Medical evacuations are not allowed either, and the results are deadly. Here's Jan Egland again. Within the last 72 hours, three children bled to death in Madaya. They were playing with an unexploded bomb, They were gravely wounded, but they didn't die. They died because a medical evacuation was not allowed, not possible to organize, and it happened, and it shouldn't have taken place. Those children should be alive today. Egelin said that he was hopeful that a new authorization procedure between humanitarian actors in Syria and those controlling access on the ground would see more aid getting through in coming days. But he cautioned that there were now fewer quick answers to the UN's aid requests than in recent weeks before appealing to actors on the ground, the government and armed opposition groups to do more for those in need. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. People who have been found guilty of war crimes in the former Yugoslavia should not be considered heroes, and this is according to the prosecutor of the ICTY, the UN tribunal tasked with prosecuting crimes committed during the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. Serge Abramets was speaking before the acquittal on Thursday of former Serbian politician Vojislav Sesel who was accused of having been involved in crimes committed by Serbian forces from August 1991 until September 1993. Last week, the former Bosnian Serb President Radovan Karadzic was found guilty of a genocide and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Daniel Degenson began by asking Mr. Bramets how the judgments handed down by the ICTY are received in the region. 
When I see nowadays reactions in the former Yugoslavia, a lot of denial about the crimes committed, a lot of still nationalism and, and politicizations of everything which led to the creation of the tribunal. If somebody is convicted in The Hague, you will have one group being very happy, the other one very unhappy, uh, you know, seeing posters in the region uh, declaring Karadzic a hero. Or when I see a few months ago one of the convicted war criminals was released after having served two-thirds of his sentence, he was taken uh, to Serbia by a government plane with two government ministers being present, and it was considered as a, a great day for, for Serbia. So the point I want to make is that, obviously, we have not been able to convince people in the region that persons indicted and convicted by the tribunal are not heroes, but war criminals. In some ways, it's been a failure in terms of peace and reconciliation. I would say perhaps we could have done better in terms of communication. Perhaps the fact that we were so much remote geographically from the region affected had a negative impact. So I think better explaining what we are doing would have been better. Your question about reconciliation is a different one. You know, I'm, I'm getting very often this question if I think that we had a positive impact on reconciliation or even a, a negative one. And my answer is always to say, well, a tribunal, accountability convictions can in itself not lead to reconciliation. Reconciliation is the process which has to come from within a society, victims' communities, perpetrators' communities, and responsible political leadership, and this is one of the big, big problems, but I'm absolutely convinced that accountability is a starting point to give reconciliation a chance. So it is a starting point, but in itself not enough to lead to reconciliation. So what next for the ICTY? We are still waiting for a number of decisions. The most important one in relation to General Mladic. His trial should end this summer. We are expecting a judgment somewhere later next year. We consider Karadzic and Mladic being the architects of the majority of crimes committed in Bosnia-Herzegovina. But this decision and the appeals decisions in December next year will be the the last decisions taken within the context of ICTY, our tribunal will then close its doors. That is Serge Bramitz, prosecutor of the ICTY, the UN tribunal tasked with prosecuting crimes committed during the Balkans war, speaking to Daniel Dickinson. 8.30 Central African Time, here's Anne Musa with your news headlines. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, the Women's League of South Africa's ruling ANC has thrown its full weight behind President Jacob Zuma and his leadership following the damaging constitutional court judgment. The Coalition of National Union of Opposition in Djibouti is divided as three major parties have decided to boycott the upcoming elections. And aid agencies are seeking 105 million U.S. dollars to reach more than 1 million people in the drought-affected northern regions of Somalia. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you very much, and you're still listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomelele Zondi. 
To the U.S. now, self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders has taken his anti-Wall Street message of income inequality to New York City ahead of a crucial primary against the Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton on April the 19th, drawing massive youthful crowds wherever he goes. The senator from Vermont again showed that his message of a political revolution continues to resonate despite being the underdog in the race to win the Democratic presidential nomination. And while national polls suggest a race tightening against the former New York senator and former first lady, Mrs. Clinton, continues to hold a 12-point lead in her adoptive state. Showing Bryce Peace reports. We need to make public colleges and universities to work Bernie Sanders believes that this is what a political revolution looks and sounds like remaining true to a message that has seen him rise into a formidable opponent to the Democratic frontrunner. In America today, we will not accept a situation where the top one-tenth of one percent now owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. We will not accept a situation where the 20 wealthiest people own more wealth than the bottom half of America. We are going to create an economy that works for all of us, not just the people on top. His rallies across this country are notorious for attracting the student youthful vote. And here in the Bronx, it is absolutely no different. His real challenge will be translating the excitement at rallies like this into votes that could propel him to an unlikely victory over Hillary Clinton come the Democratic primary on April 19th. New York is a must-win if he's to eat into Clinton's delegate lead. We want a government that represents all of us, not wealthy campaign contributors. We want a campaign finance system that is not corrupt. We want an economy that is not rigged. We want a criminal justice system that is not broken. His surrogates like film director Spike Lee recognize the uphill battle he faces beyond the youth vote. Everybody has to register to vote. We have to vote. And we have to talk to our parents. Because the old generation, they're on this Clinton thing. And we got to talk to our older parents and get their mind right. We ran into a President Barack Obama lookalike who calls himself the Bronx Obama. What turns people on more about Bernie is this whole uh, democratic socialism uh, idea. I, I, I think it's hitting you know, a lot of hearts, just the way uh, a lot of Republicans are getting hit with the whole uh, outspoken uh, Donald Trump. But uh, I think it's going to be Bernie and Trump. Others spoke of his authenticity. I'm here to support Bernie Sanders because he's representing everyone. He's a, I don't find any better person, any better candidate than Bernie Sanders.
What do you think Hillary Clinton's biggest obstacle is in this election? Her trust and her personality. She's just, she doesn't come across as a real person. And I feel like that really hinders her connection with voters. Uh, being unable to feel real. Democrats vote in the next primary on April 5th in Wisconsin, where Sanders currently has a slight edge in the polls. I'm Sherman Bricepies in the Bronx, New York. Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Thousands of jobs within the sugar production industry in the SADAC region and the rest of the African continent are still safe. This emerged during the 6th Annual Africa Sugar Conference, currently underway in Maputo in Mozambique. Initially, sugar producers have been concerned about possible job losses due to the drought that has hit many countries who specialize in sugar production. But sugar exporters are going to be hit hard as sugar prices are set to be on the rise. Abongile Dumago reports. Experts and producers in the sugar production industry meeting in Mozambique for the 6th Annual Africa Sugar Conference are breathing a sigh of relief. This after the International Sugar Organization highlighted that there is not yet a reason to panic following the severe drought that has hit many countries in the SADC region. Executive Director of the International Sugar Organization, Jose Orif, says it's mainly sugar exporters who will have to face the music as high temperatures and less rain continues. I think the hope for countries like South Africa, whose industry has been whapped, like in my country, Guatemala, by the drought, is that prices go up. Uh, We are both big exporting countries. It is important that the market improves so that we can go back to normal and reinvest in our people. This year's conferences in Maputo amid uncertainty about the future of global exports for sugar. The contract with European countries to export sugar to that part of the world comes to an end early next year. But for South Africa, it is not the end of the world. Larry Riddle is a senior manager at Ilova South Africa. He says there are some alternatives to be considered in order to avoid any loss of production. We need all the sugar industries in sub-Saharan Africa to look at making sure they have regulation in place that protects their industries from sugar from Europe and from other countries that is well below cost of production. I think the challenge is to get all the countries, especially South Africa and the neighbouring countries, to come together and look at a, a trade framework that supports domestic industries. The conference continues and is expected to consider all the issues discussed in Maputo. Thereafter, a way forward for the sugar industry in Africa will be determined and resolutions adopted to be implemented with immediate effect. I'm Abongile Dumago in Maputo, Mozambique. 
The protection of historical artifacts is not an issue during conflict, but a global concern. That's the view from Dr. Donna Yates, a lecturer on antiquities trafficking and art crime at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Dr. Yates participated in a roundtable discussion on the movement of cultural property hosted by the UN Cultural Agency, UNESCO, in Paris this week. She speaks about the areas most in danger of looting and what can be done about I'm working a lot in India lately, and I am just monitoring the English-language Indian press, and there's at least one idol stolen from an Indian temple every day. There were three this morning that I recorded. So if, if I say Iraq, Syria, or Libya, or Yemen, or something like that, we ignore these other places that are just a, a, as much in danger, because this really is a, a global issue. It's not, it's not a particular hotspot type of issue. So do you think the saturation of the market with fake items makes it more difficult to protect the real ones? The saturation of the market with fakes brings all sorts of issues, not just protecting the market or protecting real objects. I mean, the biggest issue for me as an academic is the proliferation of fakes on the market muddies the waters of academic research. We actually don't know which ancient objects are real and which are fake. If we start studying these unprovenanced objects, we we start kind of creating a past that isn't there. I think the, the idea of fakes just absolutely scares everyone. Academics and the market. The market is, is extremely concerned about fakes, but because we accept unprovenance antiquities without histories onto the market, that is what allows fakes in. How do you think private ownership of antiquities versus public ownership of antiquities makes a difference? Personally, I wouldn't own antiquities. I'm an archaeologist. I don't actually see the point. But the absolutely 100% positively legal ownership of antiquities, I don't have a problem with. But thinking on a broader level, public ownership of antiquities and keeping cultural objects in a public trust prevents destruction in a very direct way. Say if I own an antiquity legally or illegally, I as the owner, I can smash it and destroy it. There's absolutely nothing that stops me from destroying the past, except perhaps my own conscience. Objects that are in museums, that are in public collections, that are in public trust actually are protected against such things. What effect do you think the advent of the internet has had on black market trafficking? Oh, I think it's huge, especially if we're talking about these really kind of inexpensive but just as destructive antiquities that appear on the market. Uh, The Internet opened up the ability to buy antiquities to absolutely everyone, and it's also introduced a degree of anonymity into the entire buying process. Both Both the buyer and the seller can be really quite anonymous in a way that auction houses sort of provide, but not so much as this. And that's not just for online auctions like eBay. It's the setting up of storefronts. It takes nothing to create a website these days and throw some pictures up there. You mentioned that there had been discussion of some solutions. Can you give us any details on that? Databases always come up, and everybody has databases, and everybody wants to make a new database. It's kind of these days when it comes to looted antiquities, we're either talking about satellites or databases, or satellite databases, or databases of satellites, or some 3D reconstructions. In a way, a whole bunch of groups are reinventing the wheel over and over again because of a lack of communication between these groups uh, about their goals. 
an interesting thing that's coming out of this talk is there's various groups presenting exactly what databases they've created, what technology they're thinking about using, and the side discussions are how are we going to get together and share this stuff? How are we going to make sure that we're not creating the same thing over and over again? So I think that's, that is a, an amazing step forward is actually kind of sharing technology and kind of approaching this as a bit of a team effort. And what other steps would you like to see happen? I'd like a stronger discussion publicly and among various interest groups about the limitations of what data academics and governments can present about looted cultural property. For example, there, there was a representative here today that said, we need lists. We need the countries who have lost cultural property to present us with lists so that we can make sure it's not stolen. The issue with that, of course, is archaeological objects that have come fresh out of the ground. There's no documentation for them. The country of origin can only say, because there is no record of this object, we know it's stolen. That doesn't trickle through to sellers and dealers and things like that. They want documentation or else they're not going to stop what they're doing. So in a way, I would really like a stronger push to, to actually educate sellers and dealers about exactly what is involved in the looting and trafficking of antiquities and why certain information doesn't exist and why they should care about that information not existing. And that is Donna Yates. She is a lecturer on antiquities trafficking and arts crime at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, talking to UN Radio's Jenny Kengelosi. Oh, it's time for your economic news. Yes, Amanda Machak. Thank you, Spomelele. Good morning. Most foreign banks and mining companies in Zimbabwe have not complied with a deadline to transfer majority shares to locals. Under Zimbabwe's indigenization law, foreign companies had to sell 51% of their holdings by March 31 as part of President Robert Mugabe's Black Empowerment Drive. The Youth Ministry had threatened to cancel the operating licenses of companies not complying by the deadline. Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa, however, says no companies will be seized. He says most of them are in the process of complying. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe says it has compensated only 4% of farmers who were forcibly evicted from their farms during its land reform program, which sought to address colonial imbalances in land ownership. Sixteen years after the often violent evictions began, Zimbabwe says it has begun levying a land tax on beneficiaries of the program and targets collections of 22 million U.S. dollars annually to contribute towards compensation. White farmers have welcomed the plan but believe the law is discriminating against them. President of the Commercial Farmers Union in Zimbabwe, Peter Stilling. I find it extremely unfair that beepers and black commercial farmers who had their farms taken are going to be treated differently to white farmers. I don't believe that's fair. I believe we should all be treated exactly the same. Sugar prices are set to rise globally in the next few months. That's according to the executive director of the International Sugar Organization, Jose Orive. He was speaking at the 6th Annual Africa Sugar Conference in Maputo, Mozambique. Orive says the drought has hindered sugar production. I think the hope for countries like South Africa, whose industry has been whapped, like in my country, Guatemala, by the drought, 
is that prices go up. Uh, we are both big exporting countries. It is important that the market improves so that we can go back to normal and reinvest in our people. The UN says it will consider lifting sanctions on Libya's sovereign wealth fund if a UN-backed government can regain control of the country. The sovereign wealth fund contains an estimated 67 billion US dollars but has been restricted by sanctions since 2011. The UN-backed unity government arrived in Libya's capital Tripoli on Wednesday but remains confined to the capital's port area after reports of gunfire in the city. The new government is opposed by the coalition that controls Tripoli. And South Africa's power utility ESCOM says the 9.4% electricity tariff hike that goes into effect on Friday has been misunderstood. On Thursday, the High Court in the capital, Pretoria, dismissed an urgent application by consumer body Alta to postpone the increase. ESCOM argues it will help pay for a $1 billion shortfall. The utility spokesperson Kulu Pasiwe says only a minor part of the latest hike is new. Well, 9.4% essentially, if we were to break it down, it's actually a 1.4% tariff increase that we got. Because remember in 2012, the National Energy Regulator had granted ESCOM 8% for each one of the five years up until 2018. So in other words, when you add 1.4 on the 8 that we already had, so it's 9.4%. As a result, from the 1st of April, officially with uh, ESCOM customers, they will see a tariff increase of 9.4%. And that also gives the opportunity for municipalities to also submit their tariff adjustments to NERSA so that they can start their processes. In our financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 14.82 to the South African rand, at 10.81 Botswana Pula, and at 11.19 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.69 to the British pound and at 0.88 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,230 and platinum at $971 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $39.82 a barrel. And that's all for now. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And here's Sammy with your sports news. Thanks for joining us in your sport. Let's start with football where Sunderlands are set to terminate the contract of a defender Emmanuel Ebue after he was suspended by FIFA from all football related activities for a year. The 32-year-old Ivorian who joined Sunderland until the end of season on March 9th was given a ban after failing to pay money owed to a former agent. Ghanaian football agent Oliver Arthur says that the ban was fantastic news for agents. For me it's fantastic. For me it's very good for 
for the agent. If you have a good contract with a player, then definitely you can take your case to a higher level. Most of the agents think that when the player moves away, you lose your money. You don't. You you can't um, fight to to this level. It's very disappointing for a player of the caliber to to get himself um, into this mess. In rugby, South African rugby supporters will have to wait a little longer before the new Springbok coach is confirmed. It had initially been expected that Heineke Mayer's successor would be named after this Friday's annual general meeting in Cape Town, but Saru's statement released on Thursday confirmed that this will in fact not be the case. The statement said that the council and the successful candidate and his management team will only be named at a media conference on Tuesday, April 12, following the finalization of the contract. Instead, the annual general meeting will focus on the provisional liquidation of the Super Kings rugby franchise and the ongoing battle between South African Rugby Union President Oregon Hoskins and CEO Yuri Room. In tennis, Australia's Nick Kyriokis has reached the semi-finals of the Miami Open by scoring a 6-4-7-6 victory over Milos Raonic of Canada. It's the first time in his career that Kyriokis has made the final four of an ATP Masters event and will play Japanese Kei Nishikori next. Obviously, Kei is one of the great, greatest players in the world at the moment. Um, he's got an unbelievable return to serve, moves unbelievably fast. You know, he hits big from the baseline, doesn't really have many weaknesses. So, you know, when I played him in Shanghai, he, I didn't really do too much wrong. You know, I played a great match the whole time, and, and he just played, you know, really well in the big moments. I definitely had chances, but, you know, I know what my game plan is going to be. It's going to be um, it's gonna be a tough match, but I'm looking forward to it. He's a great guy. Meanwhile, Kei Nishikori defeated Gael Monfils of France to reach the semis 4-6, 6-3 and 7-6 and save five match points, and he admits that it was tough playing Gael Monfils. I have to say it's very... Disappointed, you know. Um, I thought I, I I hit the winner, but he gets every ball, so not easy to play, of course. So you know, it's it's really enjoyable to play like like player like him, but also really tough to tough to play too. So I love to see him on TV, you know. If I not playing. And finally, in motorsport, McLaren's Fernando Alonso failed a medical test and was ruled out of the Bahrain Grand Prix earlier on Tuesday afternoon with the after-effects of a huge crash in Australia, paving the way for a Belgian reserve Stoffel Vendon to make his Formula 1 debut. Alonso told reporters he had suffered a small pneumothorax between the lungs and the chest, which can hamper breathing. We want to race. We are a competitor drivers and uh, you know we we like competition and we love the sport so when you come here and you cannot uh, uh, even try it's um, it's always uh, sad but uh, yeah it's understandable and uh, I respect the decision it was uh, uh, you know I I try until until the last moment to be able to race and at least to to try in the practice Uh, has been some uh, painful days Meanwhile, Nico Rosberg of Mercedes, who won the Australian race, is hoping to take another victory in Bahrain. So of course, it was a great start, but uh, you know, it's it's one race out of 21, so it's really early days. Um, but I'm really pleased with the with the car that we have. You know, the team has done an incredible job um, to give us such a car again this year, and um, it will be yeah, a great couple of races coming up for sure. Um, but of course, we also are looking closely at the battle with uh, with Ferrari. And that's the end of our sports. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Spumelele Zondi.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 8.55 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. UN envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in South Sudan. Kenyan MPs disrupt President Kenyatta's State of the Nation address. South African opposition parties urge ruling ANC to recall President Jacob Zuma. In economics, Zimbabwe expects to raise 22 million US dollars in land tax. And in sports, FIFA bans a foreign international football star for a year. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Spumela Lezon, producer Pumutora Makata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team thank you very much for listening send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za sms's plus 27796957930 you can also tweet us rise shine africa and channel africa one we leave you with Wizkid and Ochuelakpa <laughs> me thanking God for life I just can't explain I can't explain no no yeah it's gonna be a long, long time before we stop. Boy, better know, they better know who make the scene pop. All I ever needed was a chance to get the team hot. Only thing I fear is a headshot or a screenshot. Pre-me, that my pre-me. You know they only call me when they need me. I never go anywhere, they never see me. I'm the type of take it easy, take it easy. I took girls in the very first text I sent. I don't beg no lovers, I don't beg no friends. If you wanna link, we can link right now. Yep, it wasn't Drake, it's a ting right now. Are you feeling good tonight? This thing got me thinking of for life. I can't explain. I can't explain. When I was in school, being African was a diss. Sounds like you need help saying my surname, miss. Try to communicate, but every day is like another episode of everybody hates Chris. Ever since mom said, son, you are a king. I feel like Floyd when I'm stepping into the ring. Just spoke to the boy, said he's flying and we're the ting. We're touching the road to celebrate another win. We're going in. Why am I repping these ends, man? I don't know. The government played roulette with my postcode. All I know is it's where my people, then my suffering. I've seen it before, narrate the story as it unfolds. Dad certified the settings and my mom knows. My mind full of more bullets than your gun holds. Now I've got the paintings in the front row Saying, Skeppy, come home, baby, come home Yeah, I love the sun, but I respect the rain Look forward to good times, can't forget the pain I was the kid in school with the ten-pound shoes White socks, jack-ups and the pepper grain Said they're gonna respect me for my ambition Rest in peace, my niggas that are missing I had to tell my story Cause they'd rather show you black kids With flies on their faces on the television I get up, I'm on the